the companies that we survey that appear to be weathering the challenges through the pandemic far better than, than most, there's two or three things that appear to be consistent, right? And in no rank order. I, I think this, this issue of transparency and, and, and being, I'll use the expression, interconnected with their customers in, in ways that, you know, through digital technology and ways, that, that's, that's one big one that I would say that you, you clearly see. Um, the other is they tend to be on the leading edge of the digital transformation of their factory floors. Connect, influence, optimize. You're listening to The Channel Channel, a podcast for executives and others involved in the authorized sale of electronic components. Brought to you by the ECIA, the Electronic Component Industry Association. Working to promote and improve the authorized distribution channel. Welcome to the Channel Channel, ECIA's podcast where we have the opportunity to talk with industry leaders and support our members as we navigate these challenging times in the electronics components industry and the supply chain. I'm very pleased today to welcome Tony Empoff uh, to join me in, a, in what I am confident is going to be a very valuable conversation. Tony is the president and CEO of Thomas, the parent company of thomasnet.com, the leading platform for product sourcing and supplier selection for the industrial and manufacturing markets. His career in business information has given him a ringside seat for every major technology transformation over the last 25 years. Tony regularly speaks on the digital transformation of business and the overarching impact technology is having on business management and leadership. Interesting factoids to share about Thomas, ThomasNet. Every second, an engineer, procurement professional, or MRO sources a product or evaluates a supplier on their platform. In addition, they have over 25 million users of their CAD and BIM files each year. And they produce a monthly survey of a thousand manufacturers where they capture and analyze data that provides a unique window into the industrial economy. So with that kind of visibility, there's exciting opportunities for us to learn today from Tony. Welcome, Tony. Hey, Dale, so great to be on the podcast. First off, thanks for, uh, for uh including us, if you will, but also uh, um, I, I have the sense that uh, I, I am a data geek, I know that. I'm talking to a fellow data geek, so I look forward to the conversation. Excellent, excellent. Well, we like to start our podcast off with first-time guests with an interesting question. It was started by our uh, previous CEO, and we like to ask our guests, just to kick things off, what is your favorite word? Wow, I'm trying to think broadly of your audience. Um, you know, my, I'll tell you the first word that popped to mind, I wouldn't say it's my favorite, is unprecedented because of the times we're living in. So let me not say that, Dale. Um, I, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna sound a little bit like a cliche, but I, I would say my favorite word is opportunity. And I, I, I'm a, uh, you know, I've, I've been so fortunate as you were being very kind in your, in your introduction there. I've, I've had this, this remarkable uh, career where I was, you know, kind of grew up at the intersection between technology and business information. And it has given me this ringside seat 
at so many different market opportunities as they were starting to build and as they transition. So the, the thing that really pops into my head when you ask me that is opportunity. Outstanding, I love it. Well, let's, let's turn to some of your research. You have a very interesting index that you publish on your website called the Thomas Index. Maybe you could explain for us just briefly, what is that index and how is that different from the PMI, the Purchasing Managers Indexes that are published by groups like ISM and IHS Market? Tell us a little bit about the Thomas Index. Happy to, Dale, and thanks for asking. So the Thomas Index, TMX, Thomas Manufacturing Index, is very, very new for our company. So starting about three or four months ago, we had been taking this remarkable window into the industrial economy and setting up all of our data infrastructure. And as you know, because we've, we've had these conversations before, we've been using that data to provide insights, but also provide the buyer experience and the supplier experience on all of our products and services to continue to enhance that. We then launched Thomas Industrial Data in March. Yes, March of this year. We were slated to do that anyways and went ahead with it. And basically what Thomas Industrial Data provides is anonymized trend data for buy-side financial institutions and then also purchase intent data for, for sales and marketing use. And so the index was created as a way for us to showcase our expertise in those areas, but we also wanted to create something, Dale, that we could give for free, just give to the industry to try to get a sense of what was moving in the industry in real time. And this will lead to the comparisons here. So we get about 1.5 million sourcing sessions on Thomas that every month. We're also now starting to feed some of the data from our computer-aided design and building information modeling downloads into TMX. And it gives this, this very robust view, both broad and deep, of uh, manufacturing industry. And we look at that and then we try to draw some correlations. We're not economists to be clear, but we try to draw some correlations. You know, is, where is it leading and where might it be trailing certain dynamics in the marketplace? So if I was to draw a comparison between the PMI surveys that are produced by ISM and then also IHS market, those, as you know, are survey-based instruments. They trail a market and it's sentiment data from a few hundred people versus we're tracking real-time sourcing data happening across well over a million and a half sourcing sessions. So, and I'm not trying to draw a qualitative point of view there. Um, we're, we're, I'll be honest with you, we're sort of like kids with a hot rod here. You know, this thing is, is, is probably beyond our even understanding of how to utilize this as a tool. And we're very early into it. We have seen examples where hedge funds and, you know, buy side financial institutions are starting to use these types of instruments to see if they can find corollaries between certain aspects of industrial sourcing. And then either is that the early signal that could predict something moving, say in the S&P 500 and or other type of equity instruments. Interesting. And so as you look at the index, what is it telling us today? A couple of caveats here. I am not an economist. Our chief data scientist is probably a bit closer to playing the role of the economist, but all, all kidding aside, I, I think what we can clearly see is the index would show that industrial sourcing 
hit the bottom and is now on a slow but steady recovery. And we can see that in a bunch of different areas, but I think we can clearly see that in the data. I think what, what's kind of fascinating, and, and I think we sent you one of the charts, Dale, we've been tracking the corollary between sourcing and then the S&P 500. Right. to see if we can spot any things. And I would argue there is some correlation between those two things, but I want to be clear, we're not doing this so we can predict the stock market. We're simply trying to find some interesting things that might be helpful for industrial professionals and those that follow that marketplace to be able to spot some of these trends. But we clearly have seen, and I think this has been also validated by the PMI surveys, we've hit a bottom in sourcing and it looks like we're starting to build back up, not a hockey stick, but you can see a slow but steady rebound, if you will, or recovery. Right, right. Good. For our listeners, I'd recommend that you go out to thomasnet.com and, and add this into your uh, portfolio of information resources as you're uh, trying to track the developments in the industry. Maybe we can shift to one of the major themes that you noted that you're tracking in your research. And one of those is reshoring. According to you in your latest survey, 69% of manufacturers are actively pursuing reshoring manufacturing back to North America, which is up from 54% in February. Can you share any additional insights around the particular industries that are seeing a greater emphasis on this? For example, in electronics, it would seem like industrial electronics production would be easier to reshore compared to say anything associated with consumer electronics. Can you provide any additional visibility there? You bet. And Dale, you, you, I'm sure, probably know, having watched this industry and been a pundit in this part of the industry for a while, reshoring has been taking place slowly but surely for the better part of a decade. And there's a lot of reasons why this is happening, but almost all of them are economic in nature. So in essence, if you look at American manufacturing, if not North American manufacturing, over the last 40 years has become very competitive on the global stage. The big headline there would be technology and advanced manufacturing and robotics. But also I think there's been a steady review of the underlying economics that behind offshoring to begin with, right? So a part that perhaps I pay a dollar for that's manufactured in a foreign country, I think there's been a very slow but steady reevaluation of by the time that gets shipped and by the time that gets distributed and by the time that actually gets in a customer's hand, it's not actually $1. It's closer to two and a half to three dollars. And I think there's been more optics into that. I think you then combine this idea of, of advanced manufacturing. The COVID-19 pandemic has simply accelerated this trend as it has so many others. So the surveys that you're referencing here, we do a monthly survey to complement our real-time data. And so the jump from February at 54 to 69% as of June just simply shows the acceleration that we're seeing clearly more and more companies are actively looking to reshore. And I think, Dale, it's the same reason. It's an economic one. I really think what the pandemic has done is it's forced a lot of companies in a range of industries, electronics being one, to reevaluate their supply chains, perhaps assure that they don't have a disruption if they weren't disrupted, or they're now actively looking if they were disrupted. But I think it's causing a wholesale reevaluation. And I think a lot of companies are rerunning the math and realizing, boy, I can now economically manufacture in North America, whereas before I, I thought that was just a, a fool's mission. So long way of saying, I think 
that's what we see happening. And our prediction here is, by the way, that this is not going to be a blip. We think this is going to be a sustained dynamic. It's interesting to watch the US government. You don't hear a lot about tariffs anymore, but boy, do you hear a lot about reshoring. So the narrative has shifted from saber rattling on tariffs to, uh, to trying to figure out a way to create regulatory programs and funding programs to help accelerate reshoring. A term that I came across a, a while ago that I really like it with regard to this is they call it sure shoring. I really like that because as you talk about the costs associated with it, I think that production closer to the location of, of demand really plays a key role in that risk factor that you use in your return on investment calculations, right? You bet. You bet. Yeah, well, it's interesting too, Dale. One of the things that we've been looking for corollary categories um, of, of a surge. And one of the things that is reshoring has built, we're watching things like this will seem kind of funny at first, but you'll grab it, which is things like warehousing is booming. Well, what a lot of companies are now looking to do is I'm going to locate you know, supply or, or perhaps even light manufacturing capabilities near clusters of customers. So that logistically now, suddenly, that's what I mean by rerunning the math. Logistically, I can look at this differently and think, oh, wait a second. I can actually do this, if not as efficiently, far more efficiently than what perhaps led me to outsource to begin with. Right, right. Now, we of course understand that it's non-trivial to shift production from one location to another because typically when you're setting up production in an industry, you have a, a large supporting ecosystem that supports that. And so it's a significant issue if somebody's going to relocate their production activities. Have you seen any inputs that highlight the most significant challenges uh, your customers are seeing in their reshoring efforts? You know, it's a great question. And that's something that as we continue these surveys, Dale, that's a great question for us to, you know, it, it's irrefutable with seeing the reshoring, but what barriers are you hitting or what friction are you feeling? It'd be, it'd be good for us to plumb that. And, and I would imagine to your earlier point about electronics, it, it varies by industry. So we're seeing a lot of, you know, activity in reshoring around agriculture, energy utilities, food and beverage, oil and gas, transportation, and then general manufacturing. But as you go down the list, in the top 10 is electronics. So you know that's starting to, to move as well. And, it, and it's a great question. I don't have a quick answer for you. I could theorize, but I, I, um, I think that might be worth our getting a little bit more survey data on of you know, what, um, as you're looking to reshore, what barriers are you, you know, what are you coming across? What, one thing I have heard, and this is very anecdotal, by the way, so this is not data, but this is conversations with individual CEOs of companies, is um, managing the transition from where they're currently sourcing. So how, how do you, you know, you've got boots on the ground in a foreign country managing that for you. As you start that transition, the complexity around that transition is not insignificant. And so I've heard that from several CEOs of manufacturing businesses where they've run the math, they've run the logistics, this makes sense for them, but the, the kind of how do, you, how do you draw down in one and bring on the other is, is not some sim, it's not just throwing a late switch. There's a lot of complexity around those types of things. Right. And, and looking at this from a global perspective, you know, it's, it's not unique to the US. You Correct. Know, 
there are laws and regulations in countries around the world with making requirements about local production and content and whatnot. I've always felt that the electronics industry was one of the biggest beneficiaries of the free trade environment that had been established for so long. And now, as more countries are, are focusing more on the need for uh, supporting their own economies and, and establishing locals, uh, local industries, how do you see all of this reshaping our global manufacturing economy? Yeah. Um, it, it's such a good question. I mean, you know, I'll give you a couple of thoughts that, that as we theorize around the data and engage with groups that are looking at the data with us. And I, I think in terms of how we, we may very well see a reshaping of the global manufacturing economy, there's a theory, I'm not prepared to back this up with the data yet, but there's a theory many people have put forth that Mexico will become the new China, that you're, you're gonna see almost a return to the North American manufacturing base, not just uh, American based, and that perhaps Mexico might disproportionately benefit uh, from that. Um, part of it is location, part of that is, is uh, a lot, you know, more US companies already have manufacturing facilities in Mexico than they do in China. You got a, you got a lot of variables that are, that are contributing to that. And again, I'm not a global economist, Dale, so I, 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 can, I can understand the theory. I don't know that I can, I can back it up. I think you're touching on something that's really important. I think there's a, there's a fine line between protectionist you know, policies and regulatory uh, dynamics um, and, and um, what, what many people think of as free trade. The, you know, there, there never has been a complete free trade, right? There's always been some level of either tariffs or regulatory issues or things that, that happen in every country out there. So, you know, I, I think that it would behoove us, certainly in, in North America, to make sure that we don't go too far down the protectionist side of things, because I think, you know, we, we can't ignore the opportunity in markets like China. We can't ignore the opportunity in markets like Europe. They're, they're too big and they're too, we're too interdependent already. You know, can, can we be more competitive in terms of not outsourcing as much of our manufacturing to lower cost labor countries? That's a, that's a complimentary, but the way I see it, Dale and I might be wrong on this, I, I see it as a slightly different issue. Okay, okay, good. Shifting gears a little bit, maybe focusing a little bit more on the supply chain itself. You shared a, what I thought was an excellent slide at our ECIA executive conference back in October of 2019. And that chart showed that in terms of customers seeking a new or alternative supplier, that the factors driving that, that the top of that chart was cost reduction and quality or consistency issues. Those were the biggest factors. Has that changed in the past year due to the impact of the pandemic? For example, are lead times and reliability of supply playing a bigger role in, in those choices now? Boy, boy, they sure are. And, and you're seeing um, if a lot of things around, I, I'll use the expression speed. It's probably the wrong term, Dale, to use now, but around response time particularly is, you know, companies are moving very rapidly to either shore up, no pun intended, a, a supply chain that's been damaged 
or to evaluate a second or even tertiary supplier, we're also seeing some evidence, and you've, you've seen this in other areas of, of what people are referred to as oversupply, where you know, companies are willing to, you know, they, they had very lean supply and companies are thinking, you know what, that was too risky. You know, you can imagine the, you know, the, there's a lot of boards asking CEOs these days, how do we assure that we don't get, you know, caught flat footed? Um, the response time is a big deal. Quality as we're seeing actually increase in, uh, in importance. The other thing that's interesting and, and um, transparency is something that we're starting to see in the feedback, right? And you know, from, from your work in the industry, Dale, that the, the, there is this fascinating convergence between the digital supply chain, the physical supply chain, and your financial supply chain. And the biggest advance in that area is through the magic of digital technology. We can actually see our supply chain now in ways we didn't used to be able to do that. So there's examples of companies, as you know, that have cameras in, you know, in their in all of their facilities, and they've got alerts on that so that they don't need to get the phone call that something's wrong or that a shipment got delayed or, you know, a, a machine went down. They can see it in real time and they can set up contingency plans if they're agile enough to be able to do that. So we're seeing that sense of transparency become more important than it was before. And it's, it's really fascinating. Pre-pandemic, I, I used to talk with industry groups about, you know, are you concerned about transparency in your supply chain? And I'd always get the same, well, yeah, but it wasn't like that, that that was something that really bothered them, nor did those that provided that transparency see it as a particularly strong competitive advantage. Uh, little did we know, right, that now I think that whole, I've got to be able to see what's going on because then I can make decisions. So, you know, certainly quality response time continue, but transparency is probably the biggest one, Dale, that we've seen that's growing. Yeah, yeah. You know, I guess a little dark humor. I, you know, we've talked so long about sustainability being so important. And, and in my mind, we've shifted from sustainability to, to survivability. You know, <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't laugh, but you're right, right? <laughs> you know, so many companies are trying to make sure that they, their suppliers, their customers survive this crisis. Any best practices that you can share with, as you've worked with uh, so many players across the industry? that uh, comes, what companies are doing in implementing best practices? Yeah, I, I, think, if, I think a few things. Um, you know, I, what's been really impressive of the companies that we survey that appear to be weathering the challenges through the pandemic far better than, than most, there's two or three things that appear to be consistent, right? And in no rank order. I, I think this, this issue of transparency and, and, and being, I'll use the expression, interconnected with their customers in, in ways that, you know, through digital technology in ways, that, that's, that's one big one that I would say that you, you clearly see. Um, the other is they tend to be on the leading edge of the digital transformation of their factory floors. So they had been and continue to invest in automation, factory automation. And then nowadays, Dale, as you well know, all the data that starts to flow out of that is really helpful to them, but also to their customers. So it's not just the fact that I've got robots and I've got advanced manufacturing. That's been around for a long time, but I think we're kind of in the next generation of that. And, and through the magic of some of the data sets, companies are now able to understand things, adapt to things. We're even seeing some level of innovation with those companies around business model. 
you know, i.e. manufacturing as a service and, you know, some other things that are starting to emerge, you know, uh, as, a, as an example of that. And then the last one um, is we tend to see that the companies that appear to be the third attribute that weathering the storm pretty well are companies that had a very well-organized either apprenticeship or internship that they, that they, you know, they're able to continue to hire. So 38% of the, the respondents to our last survey are, active, survey are actively hiring, but those are the major attributes, I would say, that, that we've been able to see. This idea of, of you know, transparency um, and, and staying really you know, uh, you know, vitally connected, ongoing commitment to advanced technology and, and, and automation. Um, and then some, you know, let's call it culture management, Dale, I don't know how you wanna phrase that, but this idea of understanding how to deal with the skills shortage, even in a, in a market that's, that's been pretty volatile, volatile, pardon me. And then one last one I, I would, would mention, it's interesting, starting back, gosh, this was probably back in November, December, you know, we're, we're, we version thomasnet.com. So we started to release the early, um, uh, new features with ThomasNet 5.0. We're just now finishing off all of the features. So we just turn them on one at a time, if you will. And one of the things based on the buyer experience we heard over and over from procurement professionals, from engineers, from MROs, is the days of being able to go to a factory tour. And even to a great extent, a lot of these people aren't going to trade shows anymore. Everything's being done online. They were saying, hey, we'd love to see a video tour of the factory. And mm -hmm. So we guess what we did? We launched a very simple video tour. We actually were approached by the same company. If you're familiar with the real estate platform, Zillow, it's yeah. the same company that coordinates the, you see a, quite a template, right? So if the broker wants it, there's a drone flyover and a walk through the house, some music playing, some small graphics. Same company that coordinates those approached us and said, hey, you guys are kind of like the Zillow, the industrial market. I said, well, I don't know about that, but... So we've now, I think there's something like 700 of these running on thomasnet.com. And I mentioned that in context of what kind of things companies are doing. It, it, we can see in the data, it's had a remarkable impact on engagement. And I think what it does is particularly at this disrupted time is it's giving buyer and seller yet one other connection. You know, where if you're a procurement professional, Maybe you're not ready to get on the phone with me. Maybe you're an engineer. You want, but I can see that you you actually checked my factory out, and you 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 took that next step. So that's the other thing I would mention that, and I wouldn't have predicted it to be honest with you. Today. We we did it to respond to the buyer saying, "Hey, I want to. I can't fly to the these factories anymore. That's a bygone era." We just did it to respond to that. But I think what's happening is we we were we were both good and lucky. I think the lucky part of that is the timing of when we did it had a positive impact. Absolutely, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, on a personal level as a consumer, I've experienced uh, seeing actual images to kind of give a reassurance about what's taking place. Before the pandemic hit, I went on Indiegogo and I purchased a product that is manufactured in China. And with everything, with logistics, the delays were terrible in getting that product. It was probably delayed by more than half a year. Yeah. And to reassure those people who had gone in, it wasn't a purchase. It was one of these things where you go in and you make an advanced, you know, investment. And to reassure their, their customers, they send out regular emails where they actually send pictures of the product yeah. on the shelves and being produced and the workers. Smart. In place. 
and it was a, an important part of their efforts to reassure yeah. their customers. And so I've seen that on a personal level, I guess. Well, and Dale, I think it touches on this idea of transparency. And I don't mean transparency as I don't trust you. I mean transparency in if, if I want to enrich your experience as a customer, you know, show me, don't tell me. You know, yeah. we, we learn by hearing stories and by seeing visuals and things like that, in addition to all the other things we do. So I think, you know, we, we may come through this and realize that, that all the pandemic did was accelerate our ability to use the modern technology today to tell our stories and to, and to support uh, customers. Yeah. Maybe going back to one point you made, it's a very important point for me, which is about these internships and about the cultivating talent and the culture. You shared that, again, this is a year ago in our conference that millennials now account for 40% of the workforce. And that's a growing figure. You know, we talk a lot about the challenges of remote learning and, yeah. and people trying to learn from home. And, you know, that doesn't really go all that well for many people, parents especially. So we talk about the challenges that the students face, but there's little discussion about the challenges that new and young professionals are facing. It seems that, and I have a kind of a front row seat on this one myself, it seems they're missing out on key growth opportunities early in their career with the mentoring and the relationship development, company cultures. You know, my daughter, she uh, just started computer science program at UCLA, but two years ago, she did an internship in computer science at a major tech company. Fantastic experience for her. Yeah. They hired her back this past summer, but this past summer, everybody was working remotely. And it was night and day, her experience as an intern between yeah. working at the company facilities versus working remotely. And so I, I, I take my seeing my own daughter go through that and I say, what is happening to our young professionals in the tech sector, especially? Do you hear of innovative approaches companies are taking to address this issue? Yes, it, boy, such a great question. So I, I'll, I'll tell a little bit of our, our uh, you know, journey here as well. So we're a little over 300 employees at, at Thomas and almost 50% between, you know, let's call it the millennial generation and, and the baby boom generation. And um, when we made the hard pivot to full remote operations on March 12th, the thing I knew we could do it because we're an internet company and we, we really have invested a lot in unified communications and those types of things. I was really worried about that younger generation. You know, we're, you know, our, our headquarters are in New York City. Most of these folks, their friends are who they work with. They go out and have a drink after work. And there's a lot of, um, you know, really, you know, uh, great camaraderie and, and, and socializing. And it's been fascinating, our internal surveys, as we do, we've been doing monthly surveys on employees just to make sure everybody's, you know, we're, we're following up on everybody. They've actually fared remarkably well, the millennials have. And I think one of the things that I didn't anticipate is because all of them are digital natives, right? They immediately started to use the available technology from Slack, to you know, Ring Central. We use Ring Central, which uses the Zoom video client, but it's just unified communications between audio and video. Um, to all kinds of different technology. You know, we started doing cooking classes where people would announce, you know, hey, on Friday night, I'm going to make such and such recipe, and people would go out and get the ingredients, and then 30 people at a time would be on this. We have trivia nights, we have happy hour nights, we have all this stuff, and I would love to tell you, Dale, that 
I saw all this and we set it up through human resources. And uh, mm -hmm. it, it was so cool to see because primarily the young people, but everybody got involved in this, just took the technology and started to do it. Nobody told them to, they just did it. And we have a culture committee at the company that helped with some of it, but in fairness, they just did it. Now I still worry, I still worry about the point because I think we're, we collectively, all of us are gonna pay a price. You know, if this goes on for you know a year or two, we're gonna pay a price where, you know, we've been, if anything, more productive working remotely, but we're paying a price in terms of the, 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 the social connection and, and what I call, you know, the old management by walking around, you know, right. that impromptu, hey, Dale, I got an idea standing next to the copy machine. I, I just built this weekend. Uh, I'm, I'm seeing, I, I can't see it on the camera angle I've got. I, I, I put a whiteboard in my home office because I, I can barely talk and not go to a whiteboard. But I think we miss something in that brainstorming. And, you know, Dale, I don't think that's just younger people. I, I think that's a universal truth, but um, I don't know across the industry that we serve, you know, whether many of the millennials are feeling a sense of isolation, uh, you know, uh, through something like this. I know many of the things I've shared a lot with our customers, we've held webinars on this and, and a lot of companies are doing very similar things where they're just harnessing and leveraging the technology to, to try to do a better job of trying to keep people connected but, but I, I'll be honest with you, I worry about it. I, I really do. I think your daughter's story is, is apocryphal. I, 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 I can relate to it, you know, that I, I can imagine her experience because so much of the, the physical experience is the nonverbal, just what you're, what you're taking in, what you're feeling, what you're, you're witnessing. You know, as human beings, 85% of our, our take is nonverbal communication. Well, we can kind of do that, doing what you and I are doing right here on Zoom, but in an office, boy, it's a whole nother level, our ability to do that. So I, I think there is, there is some downside to, to what we're experiencing, I think. Yeah, we have, well, it's very interesting developments there, but as you say, much more to learn. Maybe we can sneak in just one last topic before I let you go today. And it's right down the heart of what you're involved with, which is a digital sales and marketing uh, efforts. You know, companies are at different stages in their transition to adopting these tools and implementing them. Maybe you could give us some visibility onto how widely the, these digital technologies have been adopted, what's been achieved in the past year, has it been accelerated? Maybe give us an update there because you've indicated that the adoption of digital technologies in sales and marketing has probably lagged a bit how we've adopted them on the, uh, the factory floor. Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right, Dale. And and I always uh, try to give a bit of a caveat on what I'm about to say. That I, I, I you know, it's not my job to be a critic of the industry. But um, if 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 I compare um, the manufacturing and industrial marketplaces to other uh, segments of the market, like business technology, as an example, you reference being you know relatively close to Silicon Valley. The idea of the digital transformation of sales and marketing and business technology really accelerated about a decade ago. And, and it's, it's, I don't want to say it's common, but it's, it's at least relatively well understood in the manufacturing arena. Up until the last several years, the vast majority of demand was created offline. It, it, it was an industry that was very advanced in the production of its products and services and frankly didn't focus as much on the adoption of technology 
to accelerate and scale and advance their sales and marketing. Boy, are they now. Now, that acceleration had already started. I wanna be very clear about that. But without question, COVID has had a big impact on that. You know, so um, we're setting records of new business and we're a 123 year old company. So, you know, when I say we're setting a record for, for new business adoption and, and boy, Dale, I'd love to tell you, we're brilliant at sales and marketing. I, I think we're reasonably clever. I think a lot of that is we're, we're fortunate enough that we've built a phenomenal platform. And, you know, a, a lot of companies, what we hear a lot from customers saying, if this isn't the wake up call, quote unquote, to get my digital act together, I don't know what is. And so I think that's, you know, that's a piece of the puzzle. I think the secondary piece is trade shows have been disrupted, certainly. Um, and some have attempted to go interactive and digital, but the reality of it is a, a, a lot of manufacturing companies that hadn't really embraced digital, they relied on a, a couple of trade shows a year as a way to at least keep in front of the market and you know, try, to, try to stimulate some new business. Well, those have gone away for the foreseeable future. And frankly, I don't even know if we completely understand what they might look like when they come back. And so I think we've seen an acceleration of companies that are realizing Oh, I, you know, the, the world of, you know, that I grew up in perhaps that is shifting and, and a lot of sales and marketing is, is going to be a digital component. The latest stats are now well over 70% of the average industrial purchase process is complete before a buyer connects directly with a sales rep. And that's the influence of the internet. And, and you know, I think perhaps, Dale, we've hit a tipping point in that maybe accelerated by the, the, the pandemic a little bit. This, this is shamelessly self-serving because obviously we are an internet platform company, um, but, but the data is also irrefutable. And, and by the way, this is happening in other markets. It's not unique to, you know, the manufacturing market is not unique to see what's happening. Great, great. Well, fantastic. Well, I appreciate you being willing to field a wide range of questions on what I think are important topics today. Thank you very much, Tony. Hey, Dale, thanks so much. I really appreciate you having us on. Great, great. Well, we will wrap up this session of the ECIA podcast called The Channel Channel. And uh, we look forward to talking with our subscribers again soon. And uh, thank all of you for joining us today.